Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 5th, a Friday, 2024, New Year, old subject. Earlier today, I talked uh, with a young digital artist, uh, Eric Salvaggio, uh, of cybernetic forests who is in the business of sifting through what he calls the techno-social debris. And there's a lot of that debris. When we when I talked to Eric, we talked about the various plagiarism algorithms running around about both uh, the ex-Harvard president, Claudine Gay, and the wife of uh, Bill Ackman, one of uh, Gay's... Uh, big critics, uh, Neri Oxman. Seems as if everyone's stealing from everyone these days. And we talked also on the digital front about the New York Times' lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft. In a sense, it might appear as if it's all new, but I wonder if history is repeating itself. One man I've known a long time is my guest today, David Newhoff of The Illusion of More. He's been on the front lines of the fight against big techs, in his view, appropriation of content from journalists and writers and musicians and filmmakers. Uh, and I wonder whether David, who's joining us from the Hudson Valley, believes that history is repeating itself in this current standoff between the AI companies and media companies like Dave, uh, like uh, OpenAI. What, uh, what do you think, David? Is history repeating sure. itself? Uh, good question. First of all, thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you again. Um, yes and no. Uh, I think it's repeating itself, certainly rhetorically. Uh, certainly the, the rhetoric that we hear out of uh, big tech and the developers is much the same as we've been hearing for quite some time. Uh, namely, don't worry, we got this. We're going to make the world better. Um, and you should stay out of our way, frankly. And 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 we even saw that with, uh, for example, uh, Mark Andreessen's, um, uh, what do you call it, the Techno Optimist Manifesto, which essentially said, you've got to stop um, dinging tech. Uh, we're going to save the world. AI will make everything better. And uh, things like, you know, pesky copyright concerns really shouldn't get in the way. So yes, in that sense, it's it's echoing the same you know, copyright stifles the free flow of information narrative that we've been hearing for quite some time. What's not what's not the same, in my view, is the tech itself. AI, um, in in a variety of ways, it's very hard to talk about it as a monolith, but it is not the same thing as, for example, what uh, Web 2.0 and social media have done to um, to to creative works and also to to information and the way that we communicate. AI promises to be a cataclysm. Well, I shouldn't say cataclysmic. It will be a seismic change. <laughs> Whether or not it's 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 good, bad, or otherwise is a different question. But but those are the you know ways in which I think it's the same. Ways in which I think it is very different. AI poses brand new questions and new considerations. Let's remind ourselves, David. You and I are veterans of this struggle. Yeah. Both on the same side of the barricade. But let's remind ourselves of the the fights over Web 2.0, that term even, which was once cutting edge <laughs> now seems rather archaic. We've already been through Web 3, which was a bit dismal, and now we're on to the yeah, age right. of AI. 
what was Web 2 and, and how did it trigger certainly, if not a war, a conflict between the content industry and uh, Web 2 companies like Google and Facebook? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, different people will probably have uh, different answers for that. But when I when I use it, I think of the rise of, for example, you just mentioned YouTube. Um, and so I think very much so in the, at least in this context to the, to the copyright owner's interest, um, you know, YouTube learned very much so from the Napster conflict, uh, for those who are too young to remember Napster was of course a B2B file sharing service that, that, uh, altered the, the course of the music industry, um, by essentially allowing one party uh, to, sh to share their music with another party without anybody actually licensing. And it um, was uh, Napster, to remind everyone, which I think was founded in 1999 or 2000. Yep. I mean, it was unambiguous theft. Uh, there was no there was no pretense sure. about it. Sure. No, none whatsoever. Um, but even though even though Napster fundamentally lost its its case against the recording industry, um, still, I think a lot of the contour, you know, a lot of the edges of, of how far you could push the law, how far you could push the Di Digital Millennium Copyright Act, I think came to, you know, we, we see in the way that Google operated where it, it, it also um, infringed a lot of material, but it did so so fast and at scale that essentially they, they became so big so quickly um, that they almost, you know, today they're, they're too big to, to sue. Um, and we see that even now where, for example, uh, Facebook, YouTube, all the big guys who still have plenty of infringing material on, on their sites, you know, for years they used the safe harbor called the DMCA um, as, as their shield. Today, they barely comply with that, with that uh, framework. And it's it's pretty transparent that they don't feel they need to because they're so huge. Who's going to sue them? They've made deals with the big guys for the most part, and then the small guys really can't do much except for maybe send the DMCA notice and see what happens. Um, Skeptics might say, David, certainly now with some, uh, big guys, to borrow your language, like YouTube, yeah. is that they generally take down stolen material. Uh, people love YouTube. I mean, my daughter sure. in particular, I think, spends sure. about 80% of her life on YouTube, both awake yeah. and asleep. Um, so YouTube is the new TV. What's wrong with that? Nothing necessarily. And there's a tremendous amount of good stuff on YouTube. And and today, pro you know, I don't know what the percentage is today, for example, what on YouTube is original and, and, um, and legal and licensed uh, versus that which is, is still infringing. But certainly YouTube grew to its scale by ignoring those rules for the most part infringing with uh with a reckless abandon as it were as you as it were um to get to that scale and someone say well so be it uh it it created this it created this great platform that everybody uses for different reasons and if that's what it took to get there um so you know then then okay but in terms of but as we know that was kind of the attitude of silicon valley building you know Facebook famously gave us the term move fast and break things. Uh, and that was, you know, whether it's Uber or Facebook or YouTube, this was generally the um, the attitude that that rules like copyright 
like what we do with our data, like what we do with privacy, are all sort of to be um, to be overrun for the purpose of of growing so fast that we become this dominant force. One of um, the David, one of the yeah. the issues that um, concerned so many people, including I think both of us at the time was that the rise of web 2.0 seemed to go in parallel with a crisis of provincial newspapers of publishers of recording studios and yeah. so as more and more platforms and tools existed for people to self-publish so right. we had a crisis of professional media and professional creators um you focused a lot of that uh, in uh, on illusion of more your big website right. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you see that narrative of the first, shall we say, 20 years of the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, if, if I understand your, your question correctly, certainly it's true that, um, for example, you know, the, the promise of these platforms, right, was we can do away with the so-called gatekeepers, right? Uh, musicians can ignore the recording industry and uh, publisher or rather authors can enjoy the, ignore the publishing industry and you can reach your audience directly through these platforms etc um, and that's true and yet there are of course uh, pitfalls there among them is still it, it turns out that it's not that easy to reach an audience simply by putting something on say Amazon self-publishing and 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 reaching them uh, and reaching your readers that's number one. Number two, um, as as we've now seen, these same platforms that we're promising, you know, you can do do it yourself. You can put your own material out there. We're not doing a particularly good job, and many of them still aren't, of necessarily protecting the interests of those people creating material for their platforms. So, for example, YouTube created, uh, I think it was, I'm now blanking on it. It was a copyright. It wasn't copyright ID, but it was a internal copyright mechanism just for YouTubers and just for active and busy YouTubers um, to really uh, deal with the fact that they were poaching from each other. Um, so some of these promises that were made that, oh, you know, we can bypass things like permission, we can bypass things like copyright, um, were not really well-founded in the sense that even the so-called DIY, self, you know, uh, you know, self-made creator still had to face some of the same challenges in the market, and still had to face, you know, people. In other words, you know, as I always said back then, you know, if somebody likes your work, they're going to find a way to use it without your permission, and essentially siphon off your potential revenue for that. Uh, whether that's journalism, whether that's literature, whether it's filmmaking, it, it, you know, if people like it, somebody will. Try to find and some people would argue, well, there's always going to be people who steal stuff from supermarkets, from yeah. banks, and that's just the nature of business. Yeah. As I said, Good. you you've been on the front lines of this uh, in terms of the fight between big tech and the creative industry over the right. last twenty years. Do you have a scorecard, a, a, an approximate scorecard of who won and who was lost? <laughs> No, um, <laughs> I I'm don't. guessing that laugh is slightly ironic. Yeah, it is a little bit. I apologize that my my, my aging dog is. Uh... 
Sorry. Um, I, I've got this poor aging dog in this room that he's trapped in, in here with me suffering. Um, I don't really have a scorecard, no, other than, I mean, it, in anecdotally, it would be hard to say that that big tech has not, quote, won um, in the sense that in many ways, as I said just a moment ago, they are they are literally too big to hold accountable in in some areas. On the other hand, it's been encouraging to see, especially since 2016, the bloom is off the rose. At least at least there are parties willing to hold big tech accountable. Whether or not that's going to take any material form is a different question. For example, after the 2016 election in the U.S. and a lot of a lot of the mishandling of data came out, you know, we had hearings. And suddenly, at least the news was was reporting, uh, you know, things was doing that were harmful. We're still at least talking about a lot of action, really holding these these companies accountable um, for that. So, in that scorecard, were there uh, particularly important legal uh, developments, legal uh, decisions. For example, last year's Supreme Court hearings on safe harbor. Um, uh, you mean when you say safe harbor, are you talking about um, the two, the Section two hundred and thirty question? Yeah, the Section two hundred and thirty question. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, that didn't really. It, it it was problematic, right? Because the, these were these were these were cases that dealt with terrorism, and so um, and so the the questions presented the court, and I'd have to go back and look at the notes. I did write about these cases, but the the on the on the pro side, I guess the court was somewhat sympathetic to the idea that t- Section two hundred and thirty has not been well read by the lower courts, and that they are open to a case that would be ripe for a new and proper reading of two hundred and thirty. Those particular cases were not particularly effective in that regard, in part because they were terrorism cases, and the allegations being made didn't quite rise to what what the what the the court felt the claimants were trying to argue. Um, so it was it was a it was a step, but it was a kind of an incremental step, and not the ideal case. Uh, there were two cases; they were very similar to one another. Um, we, we are talking with David uh, Newhoff, the uh, founder uh, of the Illusion of More, excellent website about the struggle between the content industry and big tech over the last twenty years. Uh, David, what do you think? I, I want to talk after the the. The, the next break about AI and what we we content people should and shouldn't be doing. But what have you learned? What do you think the content industry has and should have learned over the last 20 years in terms of dealing with big tech? And this latest chapter, which, as you suggested at the beginning, is both the same and different in, in terms of the challenges. Wow. Um, that is a that is a huge question, especially when we talk about the content industry writ large in the sense that, you know, when it was about a topic like piracy, you're going to find a lot of um, cohesion, if you will, am- among different types of creators, whether they're, uh, you know, the music industry or the publishing industry. There's there's a lot of um, uh, a general agreement about about the challenge and the problem and the legal arguments. When you get to AI now, um, you see a lot of splitting off of different opinions in part because it really depends on what aspect and use of AI. 
There are people who definitely see the threat, of course, of AI to an individual creator. Um, there are also people who see opportunities depending on what kind of AI. And then within that, it will depend on whether you're talking about, say, a producer who maybe could, let's say, for example, make an animation sequence with five fewer animators than he did two years ago. Well, naturally, that producer is going to see an opportunity there, whereas the animators that wouldn't be working next year see a threat. So you, you do start to see, you know, again, it really depends on what kind of AI we're talking about and what it's being, how it's being used. Well, what about, though, in legal terms? Uh, we talked about the New York Times case against OpenAI yeah. and Microsoft. The other alternative is what... I the German media company Axel Springer is doing and working with AI. What, what, what have we learned? Yeah. Should you take these people to court or should you I, work with them and do deals? It it really depends. So, you know, it's interesting in that context that you bring up the New York Times story, because on the one hand, I think of, of, the, of the claims, rather of the litigations that have been filed against uh, AI, uh, generative AI, the New York Times is arguably one of the strongest cases to date. And that's from a legal standpoint. And that's for the simple fact that they have made a very good case of showing here's what went into the system and here's what came out of the system. And we've got a whole bunch of examples of what a, 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 an attorney would call substantial similarity. In fact, in some case, identical similarity. So, um, so that makes a very good case that there is infringement going on in 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 uh, in what the open AI is doing with the Times material, whereas some of the other cases don't quite present such compelling data or su such compelling facts. However, in context to your question, where I think this is probably going to end up when once this goes through its its process is probably with a negotiated deal where the AI where New York Times will probably settle on some sort of licensing deal for itself to work with. OpenAI and Microsoft. That's a prediction because um, I don't think that what's going to happen is they're going to say you have to, you know, you're going to pay us damages and you're going to stop doing this forever, which is, you know, what we see in other other types of litigations. I think a lot of a lot of companies, especially large ones, are going to find a motivation to to try to license. Whether or not that'll be good for news is a different question. <laughs> it's certainly. Uh... It's certainly an existential question for the content industry, news, mm. music, movies, magazines. One yep. magazine that supports us, which is excellent, original, has nothing to do with AI, is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. I'm going to run a short feature about Liberties, and then we'll be back with David Newoff, of, um, uh, uh, who has been on the front lines of the fight against big tech, uh, over the last 20 years to talk specifically about what AI does and doesn't offer. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. It's all people, no AI. And according to my guest, uh, <laughs> David uh, 
Newhoff, uh, the man who brings us the illusion of more. Um, we don't need AI. In fact, you had a post on uh, illusion of more things. We don't need generative AI. Why don't we need it, David? According to you. Well, so I, I according to me, I, I, and I'm certainly not the only one who feels this way, but um, I don't understand why we need generative AI to make art. Um, I, I can see applying AI to solve problems, to perhaps uh, improve medicine, solve climate change, you name it. Um, maybe, uh, but, but art is something that in my, in my view is something that humans do, um, and they do it for, for a variety of reasons, but I think all those reasons are fundamentally human. And I have no idea why this is a good use of computer technology and, and an incredible amount of money. Um, some would argue that, that by tasking these AIs to generate you know, poetry or music or, or, or uh, visual arts, that that's a process of discovery and it will lead to something else. And certainly that is possible. Um, but if the end goal is to replace, you know, a, a, a composer with a composition uh, produced by a machine, I a, don't know why that's necessary. I don't know that it adds, that it, that it progresses human experience at all. And, um, and, and it'll be interesting if that is in fact what's going to happen it'll be interesting to see how people respond to that because I think I think there's a connection between artist and consumer of art that will be lost and we don't know what the result of that'll be but that's been the pitch I mean the reason why chat GPT took off this year and so many of these other mm. platforms is the promise of the creation of art, of writing, of, of drawing, of pictures, of video, of music. What you clearly are not sympathetic. Why do you think it's so seductive to so many people? I wonder if it is, um, to be honest. I mean, that's one of the questions I ask myself all the time is, is it seductive long-term or is it a toy? We've seen this before. I mean, is it a toy that's fun to play with now has certain applications that are very useful. Um, and then, and then maybe isn't that interesting long-term. Um, and again, it will depend, but I, you know, I, I literally ask if somebody says, okay, this, this short story you're reading was created by an AI. Um, I actually asked the question, is it, is it writing at all? I don't know. Cause, and, and it's, and it, this comes from my own bias in many ways that, that, um, that art is something that humans do that has no specific purpose in the sense, not the purpose, like I build a car because I need to get you from point A to point B. That's a very clear purpose. Art doesn't have that kind of utilitarian purpose in my view. It, it, it's, it's something else. It's something we engage in. You can, I, I often compare it to, to spirituality in a way, that, which is not something I engage in, but it, it, it means something to people uh, on a level that, that isn't just about the utility of it. And, um, and that's true both for the creator and the person who experiences it. So I don't know why it's interesting, except, I mean, for example, if if you just type in a prompt, hey, make me a short story about you know a sci-fi topic, and it produces that, um, is that in any way satisfying? 
I mean, do you honestly believe that that is your work that you've? What about the IP side? You wrote a book. Um, that's where your area of expertise is. You wrote a book a couple of years ago. Who invented yeah. Oscar Wilde? The photograph at the center of modern American copyright. Copyright is back uh, in terms of this Times OpenAI case. Mm -hmm. If you type in to um, OpenAI, write uh, a story in the style um, yep. of X, uh, and it spits back at you in the style. Is that stealing? Write a story in the style of, let's say, John Irving. Right, John Irving. Right. So different question. This is one of the vexing questions right now facing a lot of creators. Um, many, many creators are with good reason concerned about the in the style of potential of many of these AIs. And certainly we've already seen it happen in the visual arts world. Um, unfortunately, copyright law does not protect style. In fact, there is no real law that protects style, and certainly under U.S. law. And, um, and so this is already one of the conversations being had is do it, you know, do, do we change the copyright act to incorporate some form of protection of style? Do we change the nature of what are called right, right of publicity laws in the U S to, to, to address that neither law is particularly well suited to the challenge. So this is what I meant earlier when I said, you know, AI presents some brand new questions that we have not yet dealt with um to your question in my opinion is it stealing it's hard to say um it, you know it depends in part on what you're doing with it uh why you're doing it how close you know how many people could be confused that it's the other artist's work if you're uh, if you're not saying you you've been very much a defender of content and the industry yep. over the last 20 years if you're not saying it's stealing then it suggests to me it probably isn't well, you know, there's different kinds of stealing, right? I'm saying that we don't have a legal regime that calls it, you know, copyright infringement or theft. Although what the only thing, the only exception to that, right, is if I were to, let's say, take, you know, say, write me something in the style of Andrew Keene, and then I passed it off as you in some way, then I'm guilty of... But from fraud. my point of view, I might argue that it's... It's digested my style, my mm -hmm. rewriting, my books, my articles, my audio, my video. Yep. And I'm not getting anything in return. Don't I have a good argument? You, you have a great moral argument. Unfortunately, there's just no, at least in the U.S., there is no specific legal regime that you, you can point to and say you violated X law right now. Um, and that's why it's a vexing question. Do I have the right? Like, should I have the right to withdraw my content and say to OpenAI, I don't want you, yes. I don't want you borrowing my Absolutely. style. And so please do not download my books or articles uh, yes. for your training. Yeah. And it's already a topic. And one of the hot topics there is, is, you know, the AI companies naturally want to want to provide an opt out. Uh, choice, or some of them do, and and many of the creators are saying, no, we want an opt-in uh, choice. We wanted to tell you explicitly whether you can copy my material for training. And then, of course, this gets to the question of, you know, if if training is held not to be an infringement, then 
the opt-in demand is, is, is something they're not likely to listen to. On the other hand, if it is held to be infringing, and of course it may not be the same for two or three AIs, um, then, then, then the, the creators, if you will, the copyright owners are in a better position to demand uh, terms. Right now, we're still in, in sort of no man's land in the sense that many of the AI companies are obviously going to present fair use defenses. Uh, I don't think, in my opinion, that those are going to go very well. Um, certainly not in the Times case, I don't think it will. Um, or in the Concord v. Anthropic case, which is similar, um, which is a music case. Uh, we shall see in some of the other cases, but but I, uh, you know, if for some reason, for example, all of them prevailed on fair use, then then the negotiating power of the copyright owners comes becomes rather uh, weak, unfortunately. You have your own little startup focusing on this called yep. uh, Rights Click. What are you doing? What do you offer authors? So Rights Click is a suite of tools really designed to respond to the to the independent creator who does not. Uh, take con control of their copyright rights at all. So, and and really, in many cases, doesn't even know where to begin. So, we try to make we try to simplify um, your understanding of copyright. Uh, I, I founded the company with with my partner Stephen Tepp, who is a copyright attorney and worked for the Copyright Office for eleven years. Yeah, I know. Um, and uh, sure, sure, it's it's a small it's a small world, and. Um, and it's a suite of tools that en enables you to very quickly, especially if you're, uh, uh, like for example, a photographer, because they generate hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of works, um, you can quickly register through us. You build a, a, a portfolio of your material so that it's searchable and you can, you can access information related to it very quickly. Um, and then we also have some enforcement tools within there that you can take certain actions um, on your own, if in the case of an infringement, and in part, it's built around the idea that that creators, again, like I said, they really don't know where to begin. And even if you're going to end up using an attorney or turn to other parties to help you, um, any creator should really begin with certain basics to uh, of understanding what their rights are, and also, by all means, in the U.S., get your work registered first and foremost, because that's the foundation of having any claim whatsoever um, to, to, to the full suite of remedies, if you will, to an infringement. Um, so it's built on those premises and, um, and it's, it's very easy to use. It's a web-based app um, and it's uh, affordable. And uh, we, we love uh, creators who try it out and people tell us that it's, uh, it's changed well, our certainly habit. People listening, viewing this should, should play around with it. David, finally, at the illusion of more, you've been dissecting the digital utopia for a while. Um, I'm <laughs> quoting, uh, you say that the illusion of more is a response to the promise of the digital age that more would necessarily be better. And that's yeah. certainly the premise of the AI revolution, the idea Ooh. that creatives will be given more. They'll be given smart algorithms that will help them be more creative sell more, be happier, mm -hmm. and their work will be better. Is there any truth to that, do you think? Or is it purely, to, to borrow your term, an illusion of more? Mm. Well, so just to qualify, you know, the illusion of more really had to be, had was very much focused on the idea of output. 
Um, and this idea that, you know, that, for example, more information, if we can use that term anymore, more stuff, more people having more access to more soapboxes would necessarily be better. And my response was very much no, that actually giving a billion people soapboxes and uh, and any number of, uh, shall we say, you know, bespoke channels of, of information is actually not been at all helpful to, the, to society. People are, are now s siloed in their own realities. And, and we now live in a world of competing realities, which is not particularly good for, for democracy, as we've seen. Um, and, uh, and that's really what I was re referring to very much in, in that title and that, in that name. To your question, it really depends, right? If you get into the very specific, for example, I've built a tool, you know, if an AI has built a tool that has learned, for example, how I shade things in an illustration and it, it does some of that for me, it interprets that and it, and it took an hour of work out, you know, off, off my, off my plate and did that for me. And I'm satisfied with the work. Sure. Absolutely that might be a way in which I've been given quote more in the same way that, you know, I used to type on a typewriter and do I type faster on a computer? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and, uh, although I still make my fingers bleed just as much for some reason. Um, but so in that sense, in terms of creating tools that might help creators, uh, whether it's with ideation or, or, or execution, absolutely. Um, we can, I can see positive out, uh, you know, effects of that, but as far as total output of just more stuff for society, which is, which is really what that's a response to, I am not entirely convinced. I, I wasn't 10 years ago. I'm still not convinced that that has been necessarily good for, for either consumers, whether you're talking, uh, you know, creative works or certainly democracies when you're talking about news and information which is now, you know, in my view, obliterated. <laughs> so...